The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 6 through 20, and verses 36 through 41. You can follow along either in the Bibles around your chairs or on the screen. In the Bibles, it's found on page 923. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Going now to verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This has been the reading of God's word. 
she did my opening prayer. I'm going to give you a little rundown where we're going, and uh, we'll take it apart for this morning. I did an outline. It's, um, it's funny because I taught in Acts chapter 11, and I really feel like this. I did conducting church business 2.0 is my caption. I don't know what else to do. It's like this business of how to run the church is just continuing on, and I feel like it's picking up for me right where I left off. And that's kind of a God thing, you know, when you see that, even in the assignment of how we designate responsibility and teaching in this church, how you're like, wow, that, that was given to me and it's consistent. It makes sense. So um, that was just cool for me. I did three, three sections. Um, the first section is uh, chapter 15, 1 through 21. It's the council cancels circumcision. That's what, that was the big issue. They're going, well, you got to be circumcised to be saved, among other things. And so that's the first section we'll be going through. That's uh, verses 1 through 21. The council, that's the church council in Jerusalem, canceling circumcision. Um, and then the letter they write, that was in 15 uh, verses 22 through 35. And that was the letter they wrote down to the church in Antioch. And that was where the church charges the converts. It was seized this week. It was cheap. So they're charging them that to abstain from a couple simple things, but nothing else under the law. That was verses 22 through 35, and the last was the um, 36 through 41, which was um, the controversy causes a collision between, obviously, Barnabas and Paul. So that's where we're going. I'd like to give you the takeaway. It's a real simple takeaway that salvation, what we believe in Doxon, I believe this is consistent with Scripture, is that salvation comes by grace through faith, not works. That salvation comes through grace, through faith, not works. Um, and that's, if you don't leave knowing that, I have failed as far as I'm concerned in teaching this passage. So, so we pick up, we're studying the book of Acts, and this is really, um, I was listening to another radio program this week, and, and it was really interesting. They made the statement that the book of Acts was the best model for the present church in planting and in growing churches. It's the template. And that's why there's a ministry called Acts 29. It's the next, what is beyond this establishment of the church in Acts. And so when we look for the general template, yes, certainly other books in the Bible are going to give insight to particular theological issues and conflicts um, and other aspects of Christianity. But, but when you see God call together a body of believers as a church, Acts leaves us with a perfect roadmap on not only what we build that church upon, but what we're to do in terms of ministry, how we minister, but also the bumps in the road. And that's really where we're going to be talking about this morning, about some of these bumps, these conflicts that show up. So I want to ask you guys a question in opening um, about our churches in America. Here's the question. Have, ha, how often, not if, by the way, how often have we seen firsthand conflicts, disputes, divisions, and downright wars erupt within our houses of worship in America? Let me ask the question again. How often have we seen firsthand conflict, disputes, division, and downright wars erupt within our houses of worship? How many of us how many of us have not witnessed this in our lifetime? That's the better question. That's a quick answer. And if you can't answer that saying, yeah, I've witnessed it, I don't think you attend church on a regular basis. There's my conclusion, all right? So you're just, you don't have enough exposure to church if your answer is, I don't see those things. Because the reality is, sadly, if, 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 uh, 
It shouldn't come as a surprise. And here's why. This is our news flash for this morning. The church, us here, is composed of sinful, fallen, selfish, broken people. That's who comes here. So if you're looking around, and, and yes, holiness should be the result, the unconscious fruit of a life fully yielded to Christ. But the problem is until, until we get rid of the flesh, my default setting is that I am fallen, selfish, broken, and sinful. And I want my own way personally. I don't know about you. So that's the default setting. So does it come as a shock and a surprise when we see these conflicts erupt in the church? No more than it does in Acts. You know, we're, we're, the stuff we see today has been going on since the church was founded. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. The, the surprise for us should be, why aren't we following the template on how we resolve those disputes and those spats and, the, and those matters that erupt within the body of Christ? Why do they continue on? And that's the issue. So our hope this morning, maybe in looking at Acts, is that we're going to take some of this away. So as those disputes, as those rashes of self-will erupt, as those divisions come up, as those disagreements come to fruit, to fruition, that we've got a template to walk us through how to deal with that, that stuff. So coming off of the last time in Acts chapter 11, it's interesting because in chapter 11, we were addressing those who were criticizing people doing church business. They were attacking Peter for having shown up in the house of a Gentile. And that's a whole different can of worms. And so then it continued on in Acts chapter 11 on how to encourage and support the church. And again, how to give according to ability versus a percentage. So we pick up now this week, again, in the midst of some real serious heated disagreements. So I want to ask us this question now. And this is really the takeaway. So this morning, how... How do we manage our disagreements? And it's interesting because in this passage, there's two different types, and they're the only two types you're going to run into in the church, by the way. How do we manage disputes or disagreements between doctrinal issues or theological issues? What is church policy? Or what do we believe God's word says on these issues? And then the second is when there's a personal spat, like that between Barnabas and Paul. How do we resolve those issues? And there's only two. So the good news is there's only two types of disagreements in the church. They're personal and theological. And the bad news is that's the only uh, the, the disputes that are going to happen as well. So how do we resolve those when you see something within the church? And, and not maybe it hasn't happened yet, but I got to tell you, if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to. So when it does happen, not if it happens, but when it does happen, we can, we can immediately incorporate the template we've received here and move forward. So we open up Acts chapter 15, verses 1, and it reads, uh, well, let me back it up. We're in the scene begins, the curtain opens, and there's Paul and Barnabas teaching and ministering in Antioch in Syria. And then we read Acts uh, 15, 1. It says, certain people came down from Judea. That's because Judea is up on a mountain, but they're going north. Uh, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Has anyone ever told you, if you do that, you can't be saved? I mean, that's, so we think these things ha just happen once in a while because we have sick, dysfunctional people in our church. But this has been going on since day one. They've been saying, oh, maybe he said, no, you can't be saved if you do that. If you wear that shirt, you support that group, you believe in, you can't be saved. That's heresy. And imagine especially because it's, we're not dealing all with exclusively 
real new believers, because the church has been around for a little bit. We know that Paul had been around 11 years when he went up um, to, the ch- to the church in Jerusalem at this time from Galatians. But imagine if you're in a church and somebody walks up to you and pokes you in the chest and says, you can't be saved if you're doing that. Or if you don't do this, you're not saved. You want to talk about rattling the house? That's a pretty quick way to do it. Attack at the core, the essence of somebody's eternal security. And it gets worse because imagine if you're saved and somebody walks up and says, you're not saved. Now, I know what I do. I go poke them back in the chest and call them a heretic. That's real easy. So you can do that. No, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. You're allowed to think it. But don't do that. It's going to do nothing but escalate the conflict. But that's where this starts. Do you understand the enormity of the dispute going on here. Because if we don't catch that, oh yeah, it's 2,000 years ago, nobody gives a rip, this is just some old story in the Bible. No, this is the stuff that when somebody comes to us within our church today and pokes you in the chest and attacks the core of your eternal destiny with their opinions, all right? That's where we open this morning. So they had certain leaders literally had come from Judea. These people didn't have enough time on their hands. I don't know what they were doing. Somebody needed to give them a job in the church to keep them busy because this is what they're doing with their idle time. They're coming up from Jerusalem. Paul later calls them spies, and they're polluting the church in Antioch, a new healthy church getting planning, and they're chipping away at the foundation of the church. Now, that's not a spat. I don't know what is. So, we have this group. This is the same group, by the way, the party of the circumcision back in Acts chapter 11. They were telling Paul, you can't go into a Gentile's house. That makes you dirty. And these guys just didn't get it. And the problem here is that some people aren't going to get it. And they may remain in the midst of the church till Christ returns. So, we should expect these people in our midst. And on a bad day, you might be one of them. I might be one of them. Unless you can say and raise your hand and swear like I do now that I've never been wrong. No, that's heresy. You can't do that. Of course we've been wrong. So we need to be conscious of the fact that occasionally we stake claims and ground. It's kind of sand, quicksand at best. So let's, let's move on from here. So they come up on their own initiative. Same problem. This is interesting now because this is stuff that's permeating not just this church in Antioch, but the same thing's happening in other Gentile churches at the same time. And we know this um, because this problem of uh, circumcision in Galatia, they were teaching that you had to observe the law of Moses as a whole. So which is why, obviously, Paul wrote some stuff to the letter of Galatians while in Antioch. So listen to Paul's opening words in the letter to Galatians, when he writes this word to them. Um, so did you get me? I'm, I'm transitioning now. We're, we're, we're saying that this is an issue going on all over the place. And Paul, addressing this in the church of Galatians, opens up this way. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. Meaning they were adding stuff that you've got to obey the law and all this other stuff. Which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So that was his opening words to this church in Galatia. So we know this stuff's going on all over the place. We get a better feel for what's happening now in um, Acts chapter 15 from a little bit of Galatians. And I want to read you the first five verses of chapter 2. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This is what we're talking about this morning. This is the trip from a different vantage point in a different book in the Bible. 
Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So we know we've got some other company. That wasn't mentioned in Acts, by the way. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, although privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Now think about that just for a minute, because when somebody makes this little, they're poking you in the chest, what's the underlying motivation? They want you to conform to something that is apart from Scripture. They want you to do it their way. Because if they weren't partial to their way, would they be there with their agenda? And the answer is no. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. So this gives you a little more insight into what's taking place as we unfold this. So Paul, Barnabas, Titus, little entourage comes up to Jerusalem to inform the apostles of the conversion of the Gentiles and the trouble with these troublemakers, for lack of better words. So in verse 5, Acts chapter 15, we pick up. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And that's their position. And I like the fact that the church culminated in a place where they said, present, your bo- present this policy before people who have authority. And there's your solution, by the way. Because if you present it before people who don't have authority or knowledge, you're not going to get the wisdom you need to know that this is sound or unsound doctrine. So they bring the matter. The first step really within the church, when we have theological problems, we need to bring it before those who have authority in the church. Not not have a little committee somewhere else and stab some people in the back for the next three to six weeks and start causing divisions among every aspect of the church. Take the thing to the front of the line, present it to people with authority, and start there. So it continues on now at this point. So Peter delivers his opinion, speaking. This is actually Peter's last time um, discussing uh, that we see Peter in the book of Acts. But so I want to pick up in uh, Peter with 7 through 11, the verses. Uh, Brothers, you know, some time ago that God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from the lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? This is a fantastic argument. He gets to the truth of the matter because the law, you can't keep the law. And he says, you know, We didn't do a good job of it. Why are you attempting to put it on their neck if we drop the ball? That'll shut people up typically pretty quick. So he responds, no exclamation point. We believe it is through grace that our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter's theology is that God purified the hearts by faith. And the principle is this, the very simple principle. The only competition to grace is works. Think about this for a minute. The only competition to grace is works. You either got to do it or you got to accept it. And there's no middle of the road. If you come before a holy God, you've got two, two options. Plead the fifth and pray that Jesus got it right. Right? That's what I'm doing at least. I don't know about you guys. Uh, plead the fifth and beg for grace 
and claim that the Lord Jesus has paid the penalty, or you've got to justify your behavior. You've got to say, oh, look at this, God. I did this for you, and I did this for you. And he's going to say, yeah, really? But what about that and that and that and that? Well, I was hoping you'd overlook it because of the passage of time. Well, we don't do that with Nazi war criminals, do we? And sin against the kingdom of God is called high treason, right? Okay, good. You guys with me? You're still awake. So here's what happens. That only competition to grace is works. And Peter knows he ain't got the works to satisfy the wrath of God. Or if he does, he knows he's going to receive the wrath. All right, so Peter argues when the Pharisees ask the Gentiles to do more than God required, they are testing God. And, that, and that's a, you can't get to a better argument there. Because he says, you're questioning the authority of God by telling him to do this. And so if that argument doesn't shut him up, Peter's second argument is that he compares the demands of the Pharisees to a yoke on the neck of the disciples. And he adds, not even we could have observed this, kept these rituals, these rules, these laws. So why, for heaven's sake, would you do that? And so he indicates that the Pharisees of the church were still believing that if they keep the law, they'd be okay with God. And that, will just, that, that immediately obliterates the cross. That destroys the gospel because it's defaulting to works. And if there's something I could do before a holy God to get me right with him, apart from the saving work of Christ, guess what? Personally, I think that makes a heavenly father a monster to what he did to his son on Calvary. But if there was absolutely no other option to atone for the sin of humanity, but to send a holy, faultless, perfect son to accept the penalty of our sin and then accept that wrath on a cross, oh, that makes, that's a different story. See, we can't, the, the problem with Christianity is you can't evade Calvary because it's the only thing that addresses the sin of humanity effectively and completely for that matter. And we know this, this, this trying to keep the law. James 2.10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. I don't think that's really fair, but it's the, the biblical truth we have to work with. And again, if you're guilty of something... You're guilty, right? So Barnabas, Paul, relate their success among Gentiles, which basically solidifies what Peter said. It makes it reality to say that we believed in our heart with faith and received the Spirit. They believed in their heart and received the Spirit. There's no difference now. And Paul and Barnabas' testimony locks that down. And then we have James, who delivers the final judgment. So James, or the final edict. And James, this is the brother of Jesus. Because another James was executed a couple weeks back. James, as James gives some Old Testament scripture from Amos, and his point isn't to say that the Old Testament scripture in Amos was being fulfilled, except to point out that in Amos, in the Old Testament, God had been speaking about bringing Gentiles into the fold for a thousand years. So it shouldn't be a shock to us now that Gentiles are in the fold. So we pick up in Acts chapter 13, 21, and it says this. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God has visited the Gentiles to take time, excuse me, to take from them a people for his name. There it is. And with this, he doesn't say this is just my opinion. He gives them the word now. And, and with this, the word of, word of the prophets agree. So he says, I'm not just giving you my opinion, but I got some backstopping here with guys that you recognize as authoritative. Just as it's written. And after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And there it is, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, I I started sweating on this real quick when I said, I had a steak this week. I looked down at the plate and I went, oh, that's a little messy. Let's pour that off into the sink. And then I read this passage and I think, am I in trouble, right? No, no, we're going to get to that. I'll explain that. You guys are okay with the medium rare steak. Uh, I hope at least, all right? This is crazy. You know, it's interesting where your mind goes when you're broken and toxic and polluted with sin. This is a, the punishing God is still out there in my book. And I've got to go back and say, what does this really mean? Okay. So, that, so they say, not only do the apostles use the reality they observed and experienced with the power of salvation in Jesus' name, but they back up their argument with the reality, with the boots on the ground, and then with the word of God. And then the apostles agree what they propose. So what's our takeaway here? And I'm going to get into this letter and some of those criteria in a minute. Well, what's the takeaway? We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Ephesians 2.8 tells us this, for by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. The hinge of Christianity, what locks the thing to the wall is this, this grace, this this faith. Romans 11.6 tells us, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, right? That makes perfect sense. Romans 3.28 tells us, further backing it up, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, if I've not convinced you with the black letters, I can't do a lot more about this. Acts 4, 11 through 12 tells us now it draws back to that grace and it tells us where that grace comes from. And they say this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the gift of God, Christ crucified. John 14, 6, Jesus says himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at the core of what we believe here, this is the gospel, that it is the work performed by Christ that gives me salvation before a holy God, presents me the power of the, of the cross is able to atone for the sin, past, present, and future, and I stand before a holy God blameless because that wrath has been satisfied when Jesus assumed it on the cross. That is the doctrine of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. So the underlying issue here is much a problem today. Um, The the question becomes whether we can fix this ourselves or we're going to trust upon God. We have to be careful now. What I I don't want to say is that our behavior doesn't matter. That's not accurate. We are called to holy. We are called to be sanctified. We are called to alter our lifestyle in a manner sacrificial to what we have received. But that sacrificial response is based upon a pure gratitude of what we've received. So what do we tell ourselves will fix the problem between us and God when we are not relying upon the work of Christ? And we can, the problem here, and I bring this up, is because I can get into a rut. Well, I can, be, I can experience the new birth and be bobbing along and then lose sight of how I live. And then I start justifying my behavior. And I start telling myself this. Well, I'm a good person. I go to church regularly. Have you ever, said, have you ever tried to justify you being good? 
What do you tell yourself? I go to church. That's the first place. You got to go. You'd be good if you go to church, right? That, that does nothing but change seats on the Titanic, by the way. All right? That, that's all it does. Because you've got a rotten, sinful person at home, and you take them to the church, and they're still rotten, fallen, and sinful. But if you think it gives you some solace, that's good. But I still promote church because this is where we encourage, worship, tithe, and come before God in obedience to the call for a collective gathering. All right? So I tithe and give generously. You may feel good about that, but it doesn't get you right with God. Now, I'm not saying don't tithe and don't give generously, but it doesn't fix the problem. I serve the poor. Well, that's great. And I think we need to do that as part of a manifestation of showing the love of Christ to others. But let's not use it to justify who we are before a holy God. I am moral, right? Now, here's my response. At least according to the standards of the community in which I live, right? I'm not as bad as them. That's how I can justify my behavior. I'm not that bad. Look. Look, there's Dale, right? No, no, we don't want to do that. All right? And I drive the speed limit. No, well, take that one out. No, we don't want to go there, right? I mean, it's a problem. Every one of those things don't do a lot for me before a holy God. Now, again, those are good behaviors. And those behaviors will bring fruit and bless and encourage others. But let's not use those actions to support our standing before a holy God. That's all I'm saying. So, grace does not compete with works. Again, works matter, but let's not let it compete with works. So, we pick up in Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then that we're changing gears. We're in the second section now. The church charges the converts. And it says this. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch uh, with Paul and Barnabas. Now, they did this because Paul and Barnabas were supporting this agenda of grace by faith. And there were people opposing them. So if you sent Paul and Barnabas back to the church and said, oh, we win, why would you believe Paul and Barnabas? So they're sending some other members from the church with them to validate this. And that's Silas, and I'm forgetting the other guy. We'll get to him in a minute. Then Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. Those are the two men. Men who were leaders among the believers, people with authority. With them, they sent the following letter to the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria. And was it Cilicia? Is that right? Cilicia, that's it. I didn't look that word up, and I kept meaning to do that, and I knew I forgot something this morning. Cilicia? All right, I'm on. Greetings. We have heard from some that went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. That's beautiful. I like that. It's saying those people who pestered you were wrong, by the way. They were a nuisance, and they didn't come from our camp. They were without authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that we are writing because they, again, were sending Paul and Barnabas. You need something else to verify that. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, that's who gets the credit, and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. And off they go. Now, this is interesting because note that James didn't disclose in the letter that holiness or righteousness was acquired by keeping these edicts. Or that such practices would avoid sin. Simply, he says, you'll do well to do this. And this gets to the bottom of the motivation for why they did this. Let me keep reading. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter, probably to a packed, anxious house, by the way, because 
She needs circumcision. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm an adult. This is not good. You know, I don't, I love Jesus, but I'm not sure if I love him that much, right? I mean, I don't know, but think about these guys sitting in that body. I mean, let's be real. I'm sweating. You got a bunch of, what, what do they say? Cats walking around full of rocking chairs, long-tailed cats with rocking chairs. That's probably how half the men in the room felt. All right, so here's where we are. The people read and were glad for, it encourage, for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And there's just the big praise God. What? Man, it is so nice to have those people around you, by the way. And those people are here in docks, so those who just lift us up, who backstop us, who pray for us, who love us, who encourage us. We can't do without them. If you have the gift of encouragement, let me say, skip all your other gifts. Just use that one. I'm thrilled, right? Because when you lift us up and you never know where we're coming from in this church. We might have had a horrible week. And then somebody comes up and dusts you off and say, I love you, brother. You're honoring God. You are pleasing to him. And you're a breath of fresh air spiritually to me. Praise God for your presence. I've had people say that to me over the years on some of the worst weeks of my life. I go, wow, thank you. We got that text from Tad a month ago. And I read it. You weren't here, by the way. Your text was one of those words to me that I was just dragging. And I get this foot-long text about how people love me and care for me and support me and stand behind me. Boy, thank God for these people here and now and back then. And so after Silas themselves were prophets, they said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where many, uh, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. So James' letters tell them to abstain from four practices. Now let's break this down. Why? Why did they do the, say, change these behaviors? Because in integrating the Jews and Gentiles into the same church, these practices about the meat and the strangling and the animals were completely detestable to the Jews. And he said, to keep the peace, you've got, you got to respect these other people and you've got to refrain from these things. They would not have been able to integrate the Jews and the Gentiles if the Gentiles continued those behaviors. And so they basically said, as a courtesy, stop this. The sexual immorality is a little different, but it was much more culturally prevalent for the Gentiles But these weren't laws. These were basically things they said, hey, do this to make the church work and function cohesively and peacefully. Minus the sexual thing, because that's a little different. There's much more that gets taught about that throughout the New Testament, though. But James, knowing how offensive those items would be to Jewish believers, basically says, let's give whatever the bare bones minimum is to keep the peace. By asking the Gentiles to just comply with some things to allow us to stay together and be cohesive. And that's basically what it says. Um, that's, that's how he, he lays this out. And so are we not as believers asked to do the same things within our church? Do some of us refrain um, from the use of alcohol around people who might be struggling with alcohol out of pure courtesy? Do some of us refrain from certain forms of entertainment um, just out of respect for new believers to say, hey, there are many things that some of us can do that aren't sinful, but, but for those who are struggling with other issues, do we not curtail our behavior to create a peaceful, cohesive environment for these people to coexist with us? Absolutely. And even for mature believers, do we not tailor and alter our lifestyles to be accommodative of sitting within particular communities as we serve? Completely. So this is the gist of basically what James is asking the, the, um, 
the, the Gentiles to do. It was saying that there are certain things we want you to do simply to allow a cohesiveness to exist within us. And this is a great statement. Have you ever heard this? It's, it concerns church stuff. It says in the essentials, those things we don't want to compromise, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, meaning if, if it's not essential for all of us to do this, we're going to give you liberty, but in all things, harmony. It's a great statement. In the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, harmony. And it's a pretty good policy for us with regard to the body of Christ. We have to alter our behavior to maintain harmony. That's all that was happening here. So we pick up third section, and it's in 35 through 40. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take uh, John, also called Mark. We call him John Mark often, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Now, who is right? Now, I can tell you Paul would have been right if Barnabas and John Mark got on the, on the ship and sailed, and then it sunk 15 minutes later. We know that would be different, right? Because it would be like, no, oh, you had a journey that was doomed from the beginning. All right, that's Jonah running from God, you know, get off the boat, you're in trouble now. But that didn't happen. From everything we can see and we know from Scripture, they had a fruitful, effective ministry. And Paul wound, Paul, Paul wound up in latter books of the Bible commending John Mark as being faithful and a fellow servant. So who was right? Who was right? The, the historical backdrop in Acts chapter 13, John Mark did abandon them. They all got together and went off on a missionary journey. And Mark says, no, no, I go home. I don't want to be here anymore. For whatever reason, we don't know. But he left. And so imagine this, if you're in ministry and you're in the trench, is Paul right? Is Barnabas right? And I say they're both right. And here's why. Paul was right in the respect that, that ultimately what happens is if you're serving in ministry with somebody and you've got to rely on them, and then all of a sudden you're in the trench, and this guy says, no, I'm going home. And you're left carrying their luggage. I got to be honest with you. I'm going to be upset. And it's not so much that I won't give that person the time of day in the future. I'm not going to put myself in a position where I'm going to have to potentially carry their luggage again. Or even be suspect that I have to carry their luggage. You're jaded. When you look at somebody and say, is it the truth or not? Are you going to stick it out? I don't have time for that. And that's what Paul was saying. This is... I, I've got a pre, I, I'm biased when it comes to looking at this guy in ministry. And I want to be focused. I want to be dedicated to the task at hand. Therefore, he is not coming with me. And we'd be better off not serving with somebody alongside us if, if that is going to serve as a hindrance. If every time I'm serving with this brother, I'm looking over gritting my teeth, getting historical. Not historical. You get historical. That's when you bring up the past to them. So Paul says, I'm not going there. So is he wrong for that? And I would not fault him for it. On the other hand, was Barnabas right? And I would say this is a default setting we know from Acts chapter 11. Barnabas, quote, was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So we know these guys are both grounded spiritually. And Barnabas was right because of this. Shouldn't we all be willing to give another brother or sister in Christ a second chance? When somebody drops the ball, don't we pick them up and dust them off and say, come on, let's give it another swing. How many of us... Hit it out of the park the first time we get up at bat. 
How many of us strike out the first five times at bat? Only to learn how to hit the ball later on. And spiritually, it's no different. So what happens here is that Barnabas says, no, this, I believe that this guy will be faithful and true this time, and I'll take him with me. And that settles it. Think about this. We do not read in Scripture that Barnabas went back to the church council and said that Paul was bad-mouthing John Mark and that there was a dispute among the believers and that they couldn't reach a consensus on personality disorders and that they wanted the church council to resolve the dispute. This matter was resolved between the two of them. There wasn't this gossip. There wasn't this backstabbing. There wasn't this big escalating problem. They said, okay, you see it differently. I say tomato, you say tomato. (laughs) That's nice. Go get your tomato. I'll get my tomato. And off he goes. And that's the end of it. Again, we know Mark, John Mark, would prove himself faithful. Actual words from 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul writing says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And so we know ultimately, if Paul was wrong, he was letting everybody know he was. And I'm not saying he was or he wasn't. Which brings us into the application here for us. So when we're managing disagreements in the church, whether they're doctrinal, personal, within this body, how do we resolve the disagreements? When it comes to doctrine, we look to the word of God as being authoritative, but we also look to reality to say, is this consistent with what we're experiencing? Now, be careful about this. The word of God will trump cultural norms and behaviors. If we don't barricade the walls of our church with the word of God, our culture will remove the walls. Let me say that again. If we don't barricade the walls of our church with the word of God, our culture will remove the walls. We will become defenseless in the churches today, if you look around, that are moving with social behaviors. See, the church doesn't base its core belief and doctrine on the behavior surrounding it in our culture. It should be the other way around. The church should affect the cultural and the behavior surrounding it. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So do we buy that or not? So with those doctrinal issues at the end of the day, find some people who are authoritative. Hold them to account, though, for their authority and say, back it with Scripture. And then let's be sure that it's consistent with how a believing, professing member of the body of Christ um, acts in conformity with that, however it is. But that should not, the, the behavior should never be that the cart, excuse me, I'm going to get this right. The word goes first. But I believe God will confirm that with behavior as well, just as they did with this dispute with whether or not Gentiles could be saved without following the law. Let me bring up something a little more close to heart, because, you know, these are the big doctrinal issues aren't they don't plague the church at the same rate as personal spats do. So with regard to a personal conflict, have we ever considered, first of all, that both parties could be right? Think of stop right now and say, who in the church don't I really like that much? Now, don't, don't, get, don't speak it. And if you don't have somebody in the church that rubs you the wrong way, you're not going to the right church. Let me tell you, you haven't met everybody then. I don't know what to tell you. But you don't know us well enough, right? Okay? So think about the person who gets under your skin. And I may be him, by the way. I'm cool with that. <laughs> and I may even give you the benefit that you're right and I'm wrong. I'm cool with that, too. Because I know there have been days I've staked my claim and wound up being wrong. 
So give me a little grace and mercy. But how do we deal with that bitterness? Because that bitterness will destroy and render the body uh, uh, a spiritual invalid. This will, this will destroy the church as fast as bad doctrine. So what happens? Satan comes into the picture and says this. He wants to be certain the other person, uh, that you know the other person really is wrong, by the way. He's going to reinforce that. Well, they are wrong, right? They must be stupid. What's wrong? The, the Satan will bait us. The other person is wrong. Therefore, it causes greater division. He will bait us uh, to maybe kick up some gossip. Well, but, but I should tell somebody if they're really wrong. Everybody needs to know that they're really wrong. And I've been appointed by God to tell the church you're wrong, right? Wrong. Satan lives by the motto, divide and conquer. He will tell us, how can you extend mercy and grace to somebody who is wrong? How do you do that? They're wrong. And he'll play it again and again and again. And if, and if we've got these ongoing spats, bitterness starts to grow. And bitterness is like a toxic black mold. It moves much quicker and much faster than you think. And, and it is devastating to those that you come in contact with it. Would we consider a couple things? First of all, would we consider uh, our witness might be on the line? You know, why does Scripture talk so much about the words of a man? That the tongue is just an evil fire. That, that, that we should refrain from speaking of foolish, godless things. That we should exalt each other up with psalms and proverbs and prayers and rejoicing. Thanksgiving. Would we consider the world is watching us? Not only the people in our church, but the world is watching us. Would we consider that even if both aren't right, that we've been wrong many times, would we be willing to address such issues only with the specific party concerned and discuss it with them? There's nothing wrong with going to somebody and saying, hey, brother, I disagree with this, sister. I don't think you're right on this one, and I don't want to say it to anyone else but you, but I think this is an issue. Now, I hope you feel you've been appointed by God when you do that. Because if you don't feel appointed, you might just be spilling an unsolicited opinion that's not worth much and unwarranted. You do nothing but 90% of the time when I have that type of bitterness, I don't ever have to talk about it. You know why? Because three days later I go, what were you thinking, Jonathan? How stupid are you? That would have been hurtful, inconsiderate, and unthinking. And you weren't appointed by God to tell him anyway. That's the stuff that goes through my head. I'm not sure about your head. Would, would we be willing... Um, would, be, would we be willing to extend grace and mercy to them in just a fraction of the grace and mercy that we receive from a holy God? There's the, there's the big solution, by the way. That if you want to sit around and condemn brothers and sisters within this body, why don't you go before a holy God and say, hey, would you point out to me the traitor I've been to you before I start attacking my brothers and sisters within the church? Pray that prayer first and see how far you get. Because the problem is, is you, you could never commit offense against me. That wouldn't be a thousand times more grievous than what I've committed against a holy God. Let me say that again. You couldn't commit offense against me. That wouldn't in the final analysis be a thousand times more grievous than what I've committed against a holy God. When we see ourselves truly before a holy God, I start sweating, even knowing what Christ did on the cross. You know, I think about the worst thing that we can see in a church, and it's not ministry done poor. It's Christians fighting among each other. That is the worst thing, in my opinion. Not just bad sin. We're broken, fallen, sinful men. We, we're going to fall. 
But there's grace, and I'm not justifying bad behavior. And, and, and there's foolishness, and there's stupidity, and there's illiteracy, and that's all fine. But when you see two people fighting who are professing that the love of, of the love of Christ has altered the foundation of their existence, you start to question that foundation. It's a horrible witness. I think about all the things that probably grieve God. I think that's probably in the top five. Is the bitterness of brothers among each other who fail to see the grace they receive. That goes back to the creditor and the debtor. Where the guy throws somebody into jail over 50 denarii when he owes his, his, his other 50,000. How is it that we can't forgive our brothers when so much more has been forgiven by a holy God? So the takeaway, I hope this morning, I hope that we can see this. In the essential things within our church, there, there has to be unity. We need to stand on the word of God as our doctrine, that we are saved by grace through faith and of conversation. And the second thing, that in those non-essentials, there should be liberty, but it needs to be tempered. It needs to be tempered out of love and respect for our brothers that might have a, a conflict there. But in all things, there should be harmony. That the world should look at the church and say, I wish I had a family like that. That's my hope. So let us rest on this truth that salvation, which none of us can ever earn or warrant, comes by grace and through faith and not works. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.